You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. The topic for today is the Bible as a weapon. And we have with us Brian McLaren, who's a very popular author and speaker. He wrote A New Kind of Christian, New Kind of Christianity. We Make the Road by Walking, which is actually a book that our congregation used for, I think, Lent last year or two years ago. And I led a, a book study through that with a group of people, and it was a really helpful way of of walking through some biblical texts, and it really opened up a lot of conversation, as we have a great one here today as well. And I'm excited to have Brian on as well. I've admired him, and I've gotten to know him a bit over the years, but his book, A New Kind of Christian, is one that sort of, I read that and I said, oh, somebody understands me. And, you know, I've, I've sort of been attracted to what Brian's been doing ever since, you know, the early 2000s. But, you know, his recent book, The Great Spiritual Migration, talks a lot about the nature of the Bible and how it should be used. And I, I really, you know, I like what Brian has to say. I, I find him to be a real, a, a Christian leader that I have a lot of respect for. And I would even say, not even, but I would say that he has a prophetic voice in at least... American Christianity, Western Christianity. Prophetic, I just mean he is out there envisioning something of what the Christian faith can be here and now, and he's beckoning others to follow. And I find that to be very alluring. He's he's intelligent, he's well-read, and very, very articulate, and I never walk away from a conversation with Brian without learning something and just being a lot smarter than I was when I walked in. Mm-hmm. Yep, so let's get into our conversation on the Bible as a Weapon with Brian McLaren. I was taught to read the Bible like a constitution. The Bible is not a constitution. It's a conversation. And part of any conversation is arguments. Truth and wisdom are like gold and silver. You have to dig them out of the ground. They're not just a weed sitting on the surface. You got to dig for gold and silver. And wisdom and truth have to be sought with passion and curiosity and commitment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All right. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Our guest is Brian McLaren. Brian, welcome to our podcast. We're happy to have you here. I'm happy to be with you guys. I'm a fan of your podcast. I listen often and glad to be on this side of the microphone with you. Good. Send us money. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, it can't hurt. Some, someday somebody's going to say, yeah, sure. But until that happens, I'll keep trying. So, well, yeah, Brian, the topic for today is, hmm, how to put this delicately, the Bible as weapon which seems to be part of at least our culture here in America in recent months. And, you know, not not to be unnecessarily inflammatory, but it puts us sometimes in an awkward position of having to explain the gospel or explain Christianity in a culture where the Bible is being used as a weapon that is just a very problematic thing. So I'm assuming you've observed this sort of thing as well. (laughs) Well, well, Here's the irony. For people like you and me that are outspoken about the Bible, we find out that it can be used as a weapon against us. You know, there's a whole world of theological warfare where people load up their Bible ammunition and verses become projectiles or grenades or whatever, And, you know, people see who's the best at weaponizing Scripture to vanquish their opponents. So, it it happens in the world of Christianity and theology, 
But what's really heartbreaking as well is when all kinds of other people are harmed by Christians' use of the Bible. Obviously, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people come immediately to mind. And any of us who've been in pastoral ministry have had so many people come to us who've been deeply damaged, taken to the point of suicide. I think about where I, in the little town where I live, there's a family right now where they're daughter came out as transgendered and is in the process of transitioning to a son. And this is obviously a kid who's been through a lot. You meet this kid, your heart just goes out to him. The father got so angry that he kicked his son out. And when his mother said she thought he was doing something wrong, he kicked her out too. And all of this is done with Bible verses being used like pepper spray on them at every point. So, I mean, we all hear those kinds of stories, but the fact is Muslims are frequent targets of weaponized Bible. Of course, depending on your political party, people of the other party uh, often are. So, yeah, there's no shortage of it around right now. So, help us set the table some on this when we're talking about using the Bible as a weapon, because what I immediately think of is, in, in the context I find myself or, uh, you know, um, in, in some of these conversations, what often comes to mind with using the Bible as a weapon is basically when you disagree with my ideology, you're using the Bible as a weapon. And when you're agreeing with it, you know, you're just stating the facts or you're just being truthful yeah. and honest. So how do you, how do you decipher, d- discern when we're using the Bible as a weapon and when we're not? Well, a couple of things there. First, Jared, I think that's a really great point to bring out. Underneath your observation there, I think, is something that psychologists tell us about called confirmation bias. And basically, our brains are not set up to be ideally positioned to welcome truth. Our brains are set up to welcome confirmation of what we already think. So if we're wrong on something, our brains, and this isn't just other people's brains, this is human brains, uh, are wired to confirm what we already think. It is extremely painful for us to have to admit we've been wrong, especially about the larger issues that uh, stories and, and frameworks that create the context for our lives. So all of us have that tendency. And that's really not what I'm talking about with the weaponized Bible. And I, I'm not also not talking about having intense arguments about what a Bible verse means or a passage of the Bible means or about what our general approach to the Bible should be. I think spirited disagreement is wonderful uh, when it's honest and civil and so on. But there are ways that we use the Bible to harm other people, to discredit them, to justify cruel treatment of them. In large part, this is because uh, the Bible that we love, that we teach, that we have gained so much from, has passages that justify what we would call crimes against humanity. And when you can bring God in uh, on your side against the people you hate, you know, then uh, you, you add this sort of moral superiority as you're doing something cruel and inhuman, you feel justified in it. And this is a, one of the great dangers, it seems to me, in the way we use the Bible. Maybe a a quick example that a lot of people are aware of, but we haven't really faced the depth of, and that is the way the Bible really from the second century was used by Christians to vilify Jews. And of course, anybody who studied European history knows these episodes of pogroms where Gangs of Christians would go and burn the homes of Jewish people, uh, drive them away, or torture and kill them. Of course, the Crusades contained elements of anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia. But then you get into Martin Luther, and you know, for all the love that Martin Luther had heaped upon him at the recent uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, you know, if you read his, what he wrote in his "Against the Jews." Uh, it's disgusting. It's nauseating. And anyone who tries to minimize it by saying he was just a man of his times, I think is, is missing the point. The fact that the Bible could be used, ironically, a book from the Jewish people uh, could be used to justify slaughter, hatred, imprisonment. And then, of course, in the 20th century, Holocaust and genocide, 
you know, we, we've got to pay attention to the weaponized Bible. Yeah, you know, backing up just a bit, weaponizing the Bible is sometimes has precedent in the Bible itself. Yes. And so, you know, I, I imagine, you know, saying something to someone, you know, you're weaponizing the Bible, they might simply respond, well, yeah, but I'm not weaponizing anything. It, it's already weaponized. Yeah. And, yeah. and since the Bible has authority, well, my hands are tied. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. And so, so in a way, it does come down, doesn't it, to the bigger question of just the nature of the Bible and what it means yes. to use it and whatnot. So you're right. You're exactly right. And can, can I just give you a quick anecdote about that? Yes. This is shortly after September 11, 2001. I was invited to speak at a uh, a world famous seminary. Let me just say that evangelical seminary. And I took public transportation to get there. And when I got off public transportation, I had, I don't know, probably seven or eight blocks to walk. And the neighborhood around the seminary that I walked through was almost all South Asian people, a mix of Hindus and Muslims by appearance from India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and so on. And when I got to the seminary, it literally had brick walls around it. And when I came inside the walls and gave a lecture that night, the room was packed with, I would say, either 99.9 or 100% earnest young white people. And I remember the contrast between these white evangelicals inside the walls and all the people on the outside. Whatever my topic was that night, I went off script. And I said something like this, if I were one of the people who lives around your, outside the walls of your seminary, I would not be curious about your doctrines. I would not be curious about your worship style. I would not be curious about your theology. I would only be curious about one thing, and that is, would you still use the genocide card on me and my family under any circumstances? And then, you know, I, I said, would you ever use the Bible to justify killing me, imprisoning me, torturing me, or exiling me from this country. I use the word genocide. I said, there are verses in the Bible that can be used to justify genocide. Not only can they potentially be used to justify genocide, they have been used to do so on many occasions. And um, I said, are you, are, are, should I be worried if I'm a Muslim or Hindu person living outside your walls? And there was this moment of silence. And then this student stood up and he was going to take on this, you know, outside speaker. And this guy stood up and he held up his Bible and he says, if the word of God says to commit genocide, it's a holy genocide and I will defend it with my life. And I thought, well, there you have it. You know, it's right out in the open. That way of thinking to me is so morally abhorrent. But I realized, you know, I think we have to realize that in America, the country with the most nuclear weapons in the history of history, the, the largest military in the history of history, the most guns, we have an awful lot of Christians whose Bibles could easily be used to persuade them to kill people, not just by the tens and hundreds and thousands or tens of thousands, but by the hundreds of thousands and even millions and that's why it's worth it to me to risk getting in any amount of trouble with some of these people because we have to expose this. We have to confront it because literally lives are at stake. And it's the same Bible that makes me believe that God cares about those lives that are at stake that they believe could justify them dropping a bomb or pulling out a, an automatic weapon or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I should also say, in the United States, we have a special moral responsibility because somewhere between 11 and 13 million people were kidnapped and enslaved, and enslavement in the United States was horrific. You know, that, that's a huge part of our history. Not only that, but both before, during, and after the period of slavery, uh, our ancestors, our Bible-believing, Bible-quoting, Bible-authority-affirming ancestors used the Bible to justify incredible atrocities against Native Americans. And frankly, over 50% of our population are female, and they would say that the Bible has been used and is still being used in a very harmful and hostile way toward them. So, you know, this is still a really live issue, especially for people in the United States. It, it makes, I mean, it, this is not the worst thing that have happened, but it makes the Christian faith 
less attractive. Not that the point of this is to be attractive, but you can understand why people would want nothing to do with this. Especially now, Peter, I think you're right, because you look at, you know, uh, almost everybody in the United States, if they hear the number 81, they know what that number stands for. It's the percentage of white evangelicals that voted for Donald Trump. And if we take white Roman Catholics and white mainline Protestants, I'm sad to say it's still above 50%. And, and so for all people of color, nobody denies that Trump is, is a, I mean, maybe somebody denies that he's a racial bigot, but it's pretty obvious to just about any thinking person that he's a, a bigot. And to think that white Christians were willing to throw their, their, their fellow Christians who are black or brown under the bus for their own political gain. That's deeply disturbing, you know? And so it's not only unattractive to people outside of the Christian faith, but I think there's a whole lot of people inside the Christian faith who will watch the behavior of Christians today, all of which engaging in this behavior are convinced they can justify with a Bible verse or two. Yeah, it, it's bad. I, I think it's, it's the worst in my lifetime. So I think that's a real problem. I'm curious how you would engage with people because again, to think about, you know, I have a lot of family members and otherwise who would have voted for Trump and who would actually would have said that that would have been their Christian duty in some sense to do that. And so they're thinking, you know, you use the word to do it for their own political gain. But I think, you know, when I think of those people, they would say it's in order to be faithful. And sometimes it means you have to be really unpopular to be faithful to the gospel. And so, you know, pop culture is saying that we need X, Y, and Z and political correctness, but the Bible is actually on our side on this one. And we're just trying to be faithful to to the Bible. How do you talk to people who are so deeply engaged? I I think as, you know, we, we... very rare is the person who says, yep, I use the Bible for political gain and to be helpful <laughs> and to retain my privilege. Thank you very yes. much. So how yeah. do you get under the skin of that narrative and have a good, fruitful dialogue with people? Well, that's a really important question. And I think to be, I think we have to be very, very realistic about that. The fact is, relatively few people change their primary outlook on life. If they do, it usually only happens because of great love or great pain or some abductive, you know, transformational experience of travel or something like that. There's sometimes education does it. But the fact is, you know, that the, the most powerful religious denomination in the United States, I think, is not the Roman Catholics or United Methodists or Southern Baptist or Assembly of God. I think it's Fox News. And because what Fox News does is it, it's on in many people's homes 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it gives them a narrative. It gives them a way of seeing the world. Here are the good guys. Here are the bad guys. This is a war. And so then, uh, first of all, people will tend to find a church that confirms that way of seeing things. And it, it becomes one whole package. So helping people like that change is monumental challenge. I think it can be done. I think it has to be done. And I engage in it. You know, I live in Southwest Florida, where the vast majority of my neighbors are of that persuasion, and uh, both religious and non-religious. So I'm constantly involved in those kinds of conversations. And the first thing I'd say is, I think each of us has to learn how to say one simple statement. I'll tell you the way I say it. I say it, wow, I see that differently. Uh, it requires courage to differ graciously. Now, we have to differ because if we're silent, that ends up suggesting complicity. But we have to differ graciously. And so that's the way I found I can do it. Wow, I see that differently. And then people almost always say, well, what do you mean? And then I like to say, oh, listen, I don't need to go into it. I just want you to know I really see it differently. And the reason I do that is not because I'm afraid to get into the conversation, but because I want to give that person the gift of expressing difference without having to persuade them that I'm right. And if they're really, really curious, you know, we can talk about it. But I want to model for them differing without needing to insult them or persuade them, you know, that I'm right. I'd say that's a first step. I think the next step would be we have to do massive amounts of sincere, honest, curious questioning. Tell me why you think that way. Uh, how do you feel about this? Just as an interesting example, I, I was asked to be 
in Charlottesville a few months ago when the neo-Nazis and white supremacists rallied there under the name Unite the Right. And I, I was with an amazing group of clergy who literally were putting their lives on the line by walking right out into the middle of the conflict there as a witness for peace, as almost like a buffer in a dangerous chemical reaction. It was an amazing experience. So a week or two later, I'm with a relative of mine, and we're driving down the road, and he knew I was in Charlottesville, and he said, obviously he was looking for an argument, he said, I can't believe these people who want to destroy our heritage by getting rid of Confederate statues. That's part of our history. That's part of our heritage. And so I knew he was picking a fight. I didn't want to get it into, into it with him. So I, instead, I asked him, well, why do you feel that way? So he talked a little bit, and I asked him a few more questions. And then I asked him, hey, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about what it would feel like to be an African-American where I live in Florida, the next county over is called Lee County, named after Robert E. Lee. And the county courthouse has a big statue of Robert E. Lee in front of it and a big painting of Robert E. Lee in the center. So, I mean, Robert E. Lee is more important than George Washington, you know, in this setting. Mm. Uh, and these statues and paintings were erected like, I forget, you know, mid 20th century. So this was done surprisingly recently with an intended racial overtone. So I said, have you, ever, have you ever imagined what it would be like to be an African-American person who has to go to the courthouse and pass a statue of Robert E. Lee and stand in front of a painting of Robert E. Lee while your case is being heard? For all of the listening I did, and when I asked that question, he said, wow, I've never thought of that. And, and I thought, well, that was pretty remarkable, you know? just to have him acknowledge that he never thought about it from that perspective yeah, before. By, Sometimes that's as far as we can get, I think. Well, that's, you know, and that's, it's not everyone's job to take everyone from A to Z, right? So exactly we sort right. of yeah. invade people's lives a little bit, but I guess the way I put it, what you're doing is you're disarming people by not looking for an argument, which is how we, not being in reactive mode, yeah. but being in proactive mode and, you know, that creates a place for dialogue and maybe eventually in the part of of everybody, but in this case, a part of the other critical thinking where maybe there's truth outside of our own experience and our own narratives, which, as you said, that's a very difficult place for a lot of people to get to. We're not always aware of the narratives that make us and to have them pointed out gently will work more often than being felt like you have to, you're a notch on somebody's belt. Especially if we're perceived as an insider, you know, if we're perceived as a brother or sister in Christ, then, you know, they'll have plenty of other people hammering them from the outside. But mm -hmm. if, you know, if a fellow Christian raises some of these issues and does it in a gentle but unambiguous way, I think that has a potential to bring about some change. But I should also say it's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your writing and of this podcast because you are taking very seriously the kinds of objections and questions and, and sincere concerns that, you know, the millions of fundamentalist and evangelical and charismatic Pentecostal Christians in America have because of what they've been taught. And, and they don't understand that when they were taught the Bible, they were taught a whole set of assumptions about the Bible that went along with being taught the Bible. And they were taught a tradition of interpreting the Bible that has an awful lot of ugliness to it that they were never taught. And they were only taught the upsides and never taught the downsides. And so it's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your work, because you're helping people gently but firmly interrogate their way of interpreting and applying the Bible. And again, I think this is a matter of saving lives. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only if you like us. If you don't, first I would say reconsider your life choices, but two, then just ignore this message completely. Two, if you haven't already, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There you'll be able to find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks not only email us feedback, they hop on quarterly calls to give us feedback and have supported us financially. So thanks to Brox Beasley, 
Nathan Kitchen, Denise Howard, Bob Faby, Josh Levinson, Chrissy Florence, Caleb Needens, Michelle Snyder, Shay Box, and Greg Ballou. We couldn't do what we do without your help. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now back to the podcast. That's an interesting, it, for some reason that made me think, Brian, of, of some of your journey, you know, earlier on writing books as an evangelical, and I'm thinking of New Kind of Christian and, and things like that. Well, you know, a lot of our listeners are kind of in that place where you mentioned the things they've been taught aren't making a lot of sense anymore, and they feel yeah. maybe compelled in these moral ways to identify less with what they were taught growing up about the Bible and more to trying to search for new ways to engage the Bible. So I'm just curious if you have some you know, words of wisdom as you've walked through that. How do you use the Bible now? How do you read it? Do you read it? What what kind of engagement do you have? And what how does it interact with your faith now that you yeah. kind of walk through that? Well, what a what a, a good question. So I, I would start by saying I had a wonderful advantage when I went through my kind of deconstructive and reconstructive process, an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage was I was a pastor and the disadvantage was I was a pastor. So, you know, (laughs) when you're paid and required every week, multiple times a week for me to get up and teach the Bible, whether on a Sunday in a sermon or in a couple Bible studies through the week or in you know, one-on-one or small group discipleship groups. I mean, I was engaged with the Bible so much, so I couldn't escape it. And I know that a lot of people, when they start to see how the Bible is used in ways that they see are hurtful and harmful, and, you know, they start to feel immoral in the ways the Bible are being, the Bible's being used, you know, it's very tempting to just throw it out and walk away from it. I did not have that luxury, and I'm really glad I didn't, because by being forced to stick with it, I realized at the end of the day, and this was a, a good 10-year process, that the Bible wasn't my problem, my way of interpreting the Bible, and my set of assumptions that I w- was told were, were biblical, that was the problem. And there are a whole lot of ways to say it. One way that I've said it in a number of my books is to say, I was taught to read the Bible like a constitution, like a legal constitution. 
you know, Article 1, Article 2, Bylaw 3, that sort of thing. And systematic theology involved extracting verses from the Bible and assembling them into something that looked an awful lot like a, a legal constitution. And when I gave myself permission and was given permission to say, the Bible is not a constitution, it's a conversation. And part of any conversation is arguments. If everybody's saying the same thing, that's not a conversation, that's, that's just an echo chamber. But if we take the Bible as a conversation over many, many centuries with people who have certain things in common, but other things that are deeply different, and we take seriously their arguments and tensions and disagreements, suddenly the Bible becomes not a constitution that gives certainty, but an incredible library that gives us challenge to think and gives us examples of how thinking changes over time, including thinking about God. And the guy who gave me permission to do this, it was in a little Xerox article somebody handed me from a magazine that evangelicals like me weren't allowed to read, uh, Christian Century. That was considered, you know, a liberal propaganda. Uh, all, all that Walter Brueggemann did in this article was ask the question, what is the biblical attitude toward the monarchy? And he pointed out that some biblical writers saw the monarchy as a great gift from God and others saw it as a great betrayal of God. And that was so obvious to me. And then he made this amazing statement. Instead of saying which are right and which are wrong, could it be that the greatest wisdom we can gain is to see that any government has some strong points that can feel like a gift from God and some dangers that can make it seem like a betrayal of God? And aren't we wisest when we have hold both of those truths in tension? And the day I read that article, I just felt like a door was open to me to read the Bible in a new way. And Brian, one of those assumptions you talked about that maybe you had labored under and others do too is that the Bible really shouldn't be doing that. It, it should be clear because it's God's Word. And that gets into issues that, I mean, this is in my conversations with people, this is one of the first things that comes up. What about biblical authority? It yeah. sounds like you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. It looks like... Yeah. You really are a liberal, and you just don't care about anything, and you just want to sort of use the Bible for your own agenda. And I know you've addressed that, but walk us through a couple of bases, sure. how you think through that kind of um, response. So, can I have permission to say to you what I would not say to that person? Yes. <laughs> uh, I would just want to... Because nobody else is listening, just me and Jared right now. Right. There's, there's no... I, this will not air ever. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I would want to scream, and I would say the people most guilty of making the Bible say whatever they want it to say are fundamentalists. Mm. So, uh, I mean, it is so obviously true today. It's okay for a politician to molest a 14-year-old, and we can get along with that just fine. I mean, the absurdity of what's being said and done right now in the name of God and the Bible and Jesus and morality and all the rest. So the people who make the Bible say anything they want it to say more than anyone else are these people who are, are unsophisticated and unthoughtful and either naive or willfully ignorant about the complexities and depth and I think fascinating creative tensions of the Bible. So that's what I'd say to you. But what I'd say to them is this. I would say, if you are happy reading the Bible that way, I'll just tell you, I cannot do that in good conscience. I accept that you can. But if you ever reach a point where you feel your way of reading the Bible is hurting you or hurting other people or being used to cause harm, I want you to know there's another way to read it, another way to approach it. And I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but not now. If you're happy with the way it's working for you, let's not go into it now because we don't need to argue and I'm not going to change your mind. But if you're ever interested, please consider me somebody you could talk to about it. That's what I would say in a conversation. And you can imagine the reasons I would say that. Right. Well, okay, with, without repeating everything you've written for your whole life, because we don't have time for that, what is that other way? I think I know what well, you mean. I could articulate it my own way, but, but how about you do it? What, there's another way. What is the other way? Well, for, first of all, uh, there, there are a couple ways to approach it, but the best thing to do is to illustrate it and to demonstrate it. Because I think when people see the Bible wrestled with in a more holistic way, in a non-fundamentalist way, I think they can, they, 
especially people who know the Bible and love it, they see the beauty of it. And so, maybe I could give one quick example, and I can't do justice to it in, in a short amount of time, but I think I can sketch it out. I might say to people, well, look, let's, let's take this series of stories about Jacob and Esau from the book of Genesis. I think it's one of the most interesting set of stories in the whole Bible. Um, it, it's a classic coming-of-age story. It begins with an arrogant young man who leaves home and goes on a journey and goes through a series of ordeals that humble him and eventually bring him to a point of maturity. And so, we have this amazing story of Jacob's departure as an immature and arrogant and dishonest young man. And then we see him come back and a moment of maturity comes. And and so, we could just start looking at that series of stories. And what we would start with is this way the story is told that Jacob is chosen by God, and Jacob is preferred, and Jacob manages to trick his father into blessing him instead of his older brother, It's all, God almost looks like a genie in the story and that he has to go through with what this powerful patriarch says, you know. But it just looks like Jacob has God's carte blanche to be a jerk, and so he is a jerk. But here's what happens when you trace the story through. He ends up coming home, and he has an encounter with the brother who he has ripped off, who he's deceived, who he's treated like dirt. And he says at the end of that series of stories, he says, Esau, you have treated me with such grace. To see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now, what an amazing set of stories that the guy who starts by thinking, I'm chosen by God, I'm superior, I can get away with anything has to go through a series of humbling experiences until he comes to see the face of God in the brother who he thought was disfavored and cursed and rejected by God. That's pretty amazing. And here's what's tragic about that. The way that the story is told at the beginning, God loves Jacob and hates Esau, that way of seeing was quoted through church history to justify killing Native Americans, to justify killing Jews, to justify enslaving uh, Africans, because it was easy for us to use a Bible verse to exploit the other. But if we would just go deeper with the Bible, stick with it longer, we would find that we would be brought on the same journey to where we see the face of God in the people that we formerly said were cursed and rejected by God. And we would see ourselves as needing to learn from them instead of being the people who are favored over them. I don't know if that works for you, but to me, that's just such a perfect example of what happens again and again in the Bible. When you read it in large chunks, looking for larger points than looking for verses. Yes, the problem is, I mean, I, you know, what you just said makes perfect sense to me about Jacob and Esau, one of, you know, many levels of that beautiful story, but th- th- that doesn't sell. Proof texting sells. Yes. Right? And, and, and that's, but sell, what is it selling? And I guess that's part of the problem. It's, it's easier to latch onto. I think what you just described takes a lot of patience and a lot of willingness to wrestle with texts. Yeah. Which is, you know, that, that, that seems to be in, in, in short supply. Yeah, and frankly, this is where it really becomes very difficult because one of the tragic consequences of the way the Bible is used as a shortcut to wisdom and as a shortcut to certainty and as a shortcut to moral superiority, it blinds the people to how lazy and close-minded and intellectually uncurious and complacent that they've become. I mean, this sounds so much like Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and saying, you know, you blind guides. You're leading people into a ditch. You go over land and see to make a convert, and he becomes twice the sound of how he was before. I mean, that's strong language Jesus uses, but then you realize it really applies when the whole way that a religious community operates reinforces their prejudice, coddles their ignorance, and gives them carte blanche to be lazy and never have a new, fresh thought, you know, in their adult lives. You know, it's tragic and it's sad. And here's the irony. The Bible all along, in very plain ways, like in the book of Proverbs, says, listen, truth 
and wisdom are like gold and silver. You have to dig them out of the ground. You know, they're not just a weed sitting on the surface. You got to dig for gold and silver. And wisdom and truth have to be sought with passion and curiosity and commitment. So, you know, that, that was in the Bible all along. But what a strange situation that we have all these people who call themselves biblical and yet manifest none of that willingness to wrestle and dig and ask questions and show themselves to be seekers of wisdom or the New Testament word for it is disciples. Well, and we have, it seems like too, we have systems in place that help us to not have to take responsibility for those. So that's often the function of authority is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do the hard work for you and then we'll just pass on those nuggets, not recognizing that it's in the digging that you actually gain the gold that the gold yes. isn't at the bottom, it's actually in the process of doing it. And so you, you, there is no shortcut to it. But I think we've been yes. sold that authority can do all the digging for us. And you see that politically and in, in religious institutions as well is, well, I don't want to do, it's scary to take responsibility for all of that. I'd rather have someone else do that work and then just tell me what to think or tell me what to, to believe. I, I remember very early on in this uh, rethinking process in my life, Jared, I, I used the analogy of a, of a math book. And I said, look, a math book helps you learn math by giving you problems. <laughs> you know, it, it, it gives some explanations, but a whole lot of problems. And if you only want the answers and just memorize the answers, you don't learn the math. And in a sense, what you're describing is that our Bible teachers and, and our religious authorities, in a sense, all they did is they gave people the answers and never taught them how to wrestle with the problems. And that's not education, that's indoctrination. But you know, you also, your comment, I think, exposes something else. And again, this is not helpful to say to people who are happy where they are, but for the kinds of people who, who I think find your podcast, this might be helpful them, for them to realize that the, the larger historical picture of what evangelical Protestantism and Protestantism in general has been about was this. The human race survived based on hierarchies for tens of thousands of years. And that was true in the Christian tradition, too. I think Jesus had very radical ideas about authority, but they were quickly abandoned by the early church. So we reverted to authority structures. Truth was found in sacred hierarchies. And then Martin Luther and John Calvin and Martin Bucer and Philip Melanchthon and others came along, and they made this daring proposal. Truth does not reside in human authority structures. Truth resides in a book, in scripture, in Revelation. Now, that was a huge step, I think, toward more freedom from saying that people can tell you what to think and it's your job to believe them, to say, no, you have to grapple with a book and think about it and grapple with it yourselves. But here's the problem. For the last 500 years, virtually all of the interpretation of the Bible has been in the hands of powerful men. So, in a sense, we kept the old authority structure, you know, we, we, we reverted uh, again. You might say it like this, we used to have monarchies, and then we went to democracies, but for a very long time, it was only white men, and in fact, white land-owning men, who could vote. <laughs> and things really got democratized when women could vote, and when poor people could vote, and when people who've been marginalized could vote. And in a sense, what's happening now is we're finding out that those authority structures were limiting the way we could read the Bible. And now many other voices are coming to the table and showing us things in the Bible that were invisible when we were only listening to powerful, controlling white men. Decolonizing the Bible, so to speak. And Yes, yeah. And and I mean, you know, th that can sound very intimidating to people, but it's really a beautiful process. And so you you can say, yeah, Protestants made a big step forward in, in you know, 500 years ago, but we we didn't get we didn't arrive and we're still in that process. So it's not that we're rejecting our Protestant forebears and it's not even that we're rejecting our Catholic forebears. They were doing the best they could. But we have the responsibility to do the best we can in our situation, and that means building upon the work of previous generations, including the last few generations, which are the first in Christian history, in Western Christian history, to say, we better listen to what women have to say about the Bible. We better listen to what 
prisoners have to say about the Bible. We better listen to what the people who are enslaved and the descendants of the enslaved has to say about the Bible. And when we do, we're going to, we're not doing them a favor. They're doing us a favor because then we start to see riches that were in the Bible all along and we masterfully managed to miss them. And there's, there's a humility in that process too, I think, Brian, because you know, any any movement that comes along, whether it's about biblical interpretation, theology, or whatever, you know, people who have certain positions, we tend not to think, I'm one voice among many. We have tended to think in Christianity, we're it. This yeah. movement does it. We, we I've heard this, as you have too, many, many times in my life, to sort of get clobbered by, you know, the, just the tradition that we represent represents the fullest and most proper expression of the Christian faith. As soon as you leave room for other voices to say, help me understand better, that's, I, that's, I think, a paradigm shift. That's, that's a very significant move that's probably in a foot. I'm going to say, just for the heck of it, starting maybe the impetus in the 60s, the last 50 years, things have, people have become more and maybe even Nixon, not to blame him for everything, every problem in the world, but you know the, the doubts in, in American culture with authority figures to say, listen, there are other voices that need to be heard here as well. And maybe in Bible and theology, we're sort of catching up to this a little bit later, which is what we usually do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember one of the first times I heard a woman theologian do serious biblical exegesis. Because I was brought up in a tradition, we use the Bible to say women aren't allowed to teach, and we had verses to point to and so on. But I heard this woman, and she was grappling with Psalm 51. And that's, of course, the psalm that tells David's prayer after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, after having committed adultery and and planned a murder to to cover up his crime. Uh, And of course, if people covering up crimes sounds familiar. That's because it's a theme in in human history. So she's reading Psalm 51, and she comes to the verse where David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. She was reading from King James, and done what is evil in thy sight. And she says, I got to tell you, that verse really bothers me as a woman. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. And, And she began to argue with David's confession because she saw it as woefully incomplete. That to say, I've only sinned against God is a great way of not taking seriously the woman whom you victimized. And today we would talk about sexual harassment and maybe even rape because of the power differential there. And the fact that he got her husband killed, you know, and that he engaged in this huge cover-up. You know, she said, he sinned against his people. He sinned against and. I remember thinking, you're not allowed to do that. But then I thought, why not? It's there. And she's got a point. <laughs> and, and I remember just thinking that day, I just had a whole world open up to me that I'm allowed to read the Bible and be honest and actually have honest reactions to it and interrogate the text. And I'm not being disrespectful of the Bible. I'm showing how much I respect it by letting other parts of the Bible challenge me in this, you know. And that's a big hurdle for people to get over, Brian. I agree with you, and, and we, you know, we all do here, Jared, as well, that interrogating the Bible is not a sign of lack of faith or something or disrespect. It's what you do when you're grappling seriously with this text. And that is something that I think if, if people can get to a comfort level about that idea, I think some of these discussions can really take place in earnest. And, you know, if people feel nervous about that, they can open up their Bibles and they can go to the stories of Moses and God, where God says, I'm done with these people. Moses says, I don't think he should be done. He argues with God about that. Or Abraham argues with God. You don't want to do that, God. That would be terrible. Or or even in, in the Gospels, you know, Peter says, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But you notice what Jesus doesn't say. Uh, I'm kicking you off my roster of 12 disciples. You know, I'm putting up a, a, no, Peter is allowed to argue with Jesus. He's even allowed to tell Jesus he thinks he's wrong. And, you know, eventually he comes around and even, you know, in the last verses of the gospel of John, Jesus is still affirming Peter as a failed guy who still has a place at the table. And Mm. so if people are nervous about that, they've got plenty of evidence 
from direct encounters with Jesus and with God in the Hebrew scriptures that God invites honest engagement. Yeah. Just read the Bible. Well, Brian, listen, uh, we're coming to the end of our time here. And is there any project that you're working on at the time, you know, as we're recording this? And, and uh, is there a book coming out, you know, or you're working on a new book at this point? Your last one was A Great Spiritual Migration, right? Yeah. And uh, that came out when in like... Uh, uh, 2016, yeah. 2016, I think, right, yeah. yeah. So I read it. Uh, yeah. Are you working on anything else at this point? Yeah, so the first thing I should say is, you know, the, the book I've written where I talk, the two books I've written where I talk directly about how we read and interpret the Bible, one is called A New Kind of Christianity, and then the other one is The Great Spiritual Migration. And the middle third of that book is especially about the issue of God and, and whether we see God as violent and how that challenges us to read the Bible in some fresh ways. But one of the books that I put poured most of my heart into of any of the books that I've written it was called We Make the Road by Walking. And it's actually an attempt to give an overview of the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation and to do it in this kind of, this, the way that we're talking about. In other words, to try to demonstrate to people a way of engaging honestly and seriously with the great text of Scripture. That book, We Make the Road by Walking, was just re-released this fall as a set of daily devotionals. It, instead of 52 chapters, one for each week, we broke it down into basically five days a week for a year of short kind of devotional readings that give people an overview of the Bible. So if people are interested in my in, in, an attempt, it's not the only way to do it, but it's my best attempt to do it that could be useful to them. All right, that's great. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. We had a great time, informative as always, and uh, scintillating. Well, keep up the great work, and uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for listening, folks. And again, just to plug a couple of Brian's books that I found very helpful, New Kind of Christian and The Great Spiritual Migration, his most recent book. I think that if you haven't read them yet, they are provocative, but also gentle. They push you but don't scare you. I think Brian has a very pastoral voice as well as a prophetic voice. So I really recommend those to you and, and um, you know, check them out when you get a chance. And if you haven't already, we would also invite you to check out um, our site on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. One thing uh, that's part of that that we don't highlight too often on here is that at certain levels of support, you get different videos and rants by Pete and myself, although Pete's are usually more interesting. Mm -hmm. He gets real red in the face. He really gets ranty. Uh, But just checking that out where we can uh, just pontificate, think through different things. Pete and I will just randomly, as we think of topics, sit down, record video, post it there, and it's only for our Patreon subscribers. And again, that's a a place where we're trying to grow this community to have these kind of conversations. So check it out again, patreon.com, front slash the Bible for normal people.